0: if an enemy was waging war against you, you would want to know everything you can about that enemy. It would be crucial to understand the enemy's weapons and tactics, to do reconnaissance, to not simply learn the, the location of the enemy, but to understand the enemy's strategies, what that enemy relies on, what that enemy brings into the battle. As believers in Jesus Christ, we are engaged In warfare, Scripture is abundantly clear about that, and yet C.S. Lewis famously wrote, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils, one to disbelieve their existence, the other to believe and feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. The demons are equally pleased by both errors. We're obviously not to be obsessed by spiritual warfare on the one hand, because the Bible tells us that he who is in you as a believer in Jesus Christ is greater than he who is in the world. But a chapter later, that's 1 John 4.4. In 1 John 5.19, it tells us that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. As one writer put it in a book on spiritual warfare, everyone is in someone. You have either repented of your sin and are trusting in Christ and therefore are in Christ, or or you are very much in the power of the evil one. That is what God's word says. It is that explicit. But 1 John 5.19 is also meant to bring us encouragement coupled with warning when it describes who we are in Christ, and yet the fact that we are still in this world, and the world is in the power of the evil one. 1 John 5.19 is seeking to, to tell us, take heart, You are in Christ, and he has overcome the world, but take heed. You still live in the world, and the world is the the place where the power of the evil one is still made manifest. So we are in spiritual warfare. There is a real and powerful enemy who hates you, accuses you, tempts you, tries to confuse and deceive you, and would desire most of all to destroy you were you not in Christ. Turn to John chapter 8. I just want a couple of verses in in John 8, and then we'll move our way over to 2 Timothy is where we'll spend most of our time. But John 8, of all the things that we know about this enemy, preeminently we know that he lies. He lies all of the time because lying is his Very being, that is what he does, that is who he is. Jesus says that in John 8. He has just described how truth sets us free, and then he confronts his opponents who are mocking him. And in verse 42 of John 8, Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me, for I come from God, and I am here. I I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? Jesus says to these who are disbelieving him that Satan kills and he lies. That is what the devil is about. These are not just his activities. This is his character. It is a murderous, destructive, lying character. There is no truth in Satan, unlike the, the broken clock that's, that's right Twice a day, that's one of those round ones, the old school kind of clocks. Unlike that broken clock that's right twice a day, Satan's never right. Even when he says something that is factually true, his aim is still to deceive. He's still a liar. Revelation twelve nine. he's called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the world. Devil's from a Greek word that means a slanderer, one who falsely accuses. Satan means adversary or enemy, and the description says that his whole aim is, is just constant deception. It is to lead astray. It is to, to cause people to, to misunderstand, to seduce them. And he is the deceiver of the whole world, it says. We need only go back to Genesis 3 and and to his first encounter with mankind where Satan wages war against Adam and Eve and it is fully grounded in deception. He either lies or distorts taking God's words and, 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 and moving them, shaping them just enough to try to deceive Eve. So here's the point. As a believer in Jesus Christ, you are in Christ, you are in the one who is greater than the evil one, but you are still engaged in spiritual warfare. You you still have an enemy whose primary weapon is deception, who still wants to attack at you and confuse you. And he uses deception against you. Satan seeks to lure true believers in Jesus Christ into disunity, into hating other people, into overwhelming fear and anxiety. Uh, Satan wants to deter you from loving your neighbor. He wants to displace Christ and his gospel from the preeminent place in your life and preoccupy you w- with the temporal things of the world because that is where his influence remains greatest. He wants to take that, that very picture that, that Stuart read just a few minutes ago from Philippians 2. And turn it on its head. He wants to disfigure it. He wants the church to look ugly and be disunified and hateful. That is his aim. If you'll flip to Colossians 1, we'll we'll make our way as we're moving towards 2 Timothy, but Colossians 1 for just a second. This morning, we gather in the midst of a country that is filled with disunity and hatred and fear and swims in, in the pluralism of man-centered wisdom. I, I, I want to speak to you to, to make sure that we are not captured by those things. This is the, the domain of darkness around us and we are surrounded by us. And I, and I want to encourage us from scripture that we not be taken captive by these things. In Colossians chapter one, verse 13, see the description here of those who believe in Christ. He has delivered us, From the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. What a glorious picture of being taken out of the domain of darkness, being in that place that is just Covered in darkness. It's, it, it's beyond your worst experience when you were a child in the basement and there were no lights and it just felt pitch black. This is darkness that invades the soul. And he has rescued us from that domain of darkness and delivered us into the kingdom of his son. That is, that is our hope. The trouble is we are still surrounded By that domain of darkness, it is still very much in existence. And Satan is still using the people and things of that domain to appeal to the lust of our eyes and the desires and cravings of our flesh and our heart. That's why Colossians 2 then goes on and it commands believers to continue to walk in the truth if you've embraced Jesus Christ. And if you look at verse 8 of Colossians 2, see to it, that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. When verse 8 begins, see to it, that sounds like it's just sort of a nice, hey, see to it that you do this, it's an imperative in the Greek. So this is a command, and it really could be translated as beware. You need to be on notice about this. You need to be very careful that you are not kidnapped by the wisdom of the world, by the wisdom that belongs to the world. When he uses that term um, philosophies here in 2.8, um, uh, philosophy and empty deceit, the, the, the basic meaning of philosophy is love of wisdom, but it's the idea that this is, this is the world's ways of thinking. Don't, don't fall in love with these things, how the world looks at life and describes man and his need. Beware that you are not taken captive. By those whose views of life sound deceptively appealing and yet are not resting in the truth of Christ. Beware that you don't look to their wisdom just because so many other people do. The, the prevailing temptation here for us is we, the closer we move toward Christ And toward living out the gospel of Jesus Christ, the the smaller our community feels like at some times in in, in the midst of the domain of darkness. And the temptation is to be drawn to that worldly wisdom because so many people we know are or because somehow God's word feels too simplistic for the sort of complex times that we're in. So turn to 2 Timothy 3. I picked up, downloaded, Kindle, a, a newly published book this week for its First week out, Amazon ranked it as number one in new releases in the category of Christian faith. If you want an eclectic mix of mostly bad theology, check out what Amazon defines as books on its bestseller list of Christian faith. You'll you'll find a glimmer or two in there that might be worthwhile, but what you'll mostly find is junk for the most part. Um, so you probably don't need to look up that list, but anyway. The heart and soul of this book is to to guide the reader through the postmodern concept of of deconstruction. Postmodernism, of course, is what gives us the the mentality that truth is no longer objective, you can't really know reality, truth is as it feels to me as I experience it, and so that's where we get the, the my truth sort of idea. And what the author does in this book, as he's done in others, is to explain how to, how to deconstruct your faith and not take the Bible so literally. And his premise is that you can essentially go through and, and find all the good parts about love and acceptance, the, the the parts that that make you feel warm and comfortable, and and then reject the parts about sin and judgment that probably already made you feel a little icky in the first place. As sort of, I'm I'm paraphrasing, but that's generally the sequence he walks through. With the idea that then once you've you've jettisoned all that bad stuff that you probably gave you doubts and struggles anyway, then you can be left with harmony and a robust faith because you're now believing the the stuff you like, the stuff that's left over after you've gotten rid of the other stuff. And along the way, you sort of offload some of these sort of childish, immature ideas as as he tends to describe them as right and wrong and good and evil. This is dangerous stuff. This is just... Not, not just undermining the gospel, this is completely flipping the gospel and, and, and turning people toward this selfish approach to, I'll, I'll get what feels good to me, and if it doesn't feel so good, then that's not included in my faith. That sort of raises some doubts or questions for me, and so I'll, I'll leave that out. Here's the thing, though. The Bible constantly is warning you and I as believers in Jesus Christ about such things because God wants us to recognize how enticing these worldviews are. He wants us to, to, to see these things. Because there are other people who will say, hey, have you read this? This, this might help you because it, the, the world's deception is pervasive. And if it didn't have some glimmer and appeal to it, then it would be obvious. It would have the, the false teaching label on it, but it, it doesn't. And so that's why Scripture's warning us of how susceptible we are to being deceived. Second Timothy 3 verse 1 says, But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. Pause there. For Paul, as he writes this to Timothy, this is in, in the context of what he has just been saying and he's been addressing false teaching that, that Timothy is beginning to, to face and have to counter that's creeping into the church. And so there's a very specific meaning there. But Paul also broadens it out when he says, in the last days, there will come times of difficulty. In other words, Timothy, what you're experiencing there in Ephesus is, is, is not an isolated event. This is happening. This is this is broad Throughout the New Testament, the the term last days essentially describes the Christian era. It is from the um, resurrection and ascension of Christ, and from that moment on, we have been anticipating his return. We have eager, longed, (laughs) wow, that just took adjectives all over the place, longingly been eager for the return of Jesus Christ. We live in those last days, in that period of time when we wait for his coming, and he establishes his lordship over all of creation. And so this last days, we have been in the last days as much today as we were four years ago, as we were 400 years ago, as we were 2,000 years ago. These times of difficulty only increase. And these are terrible days. One commentator in his section on first, uh, Second Timothy chapter 3 titles this summary as, Withstanding the suction of terrible times. Withstanding the suction of terrible times. He's right. These are terrible times, but the point of the passage is to warn us about getting sucked into them. It, it's saying to believers that there's stuff happening, there's things being taught, there's, there's messages out there, there, there's hatred, there's disunity, there's violence, there's worldly wisdom, and it's all going to pull you in if you're not careful, and you, you best not get sucked into this. And so this morning and next week, I want us to, to think about the issues of deception and, and authority. Deception is real, and there are Two ways, two primary ways for us to avoid. The one we'll look at next week, he begins down in verse 10 of this section when he says, continue to follow the things you have been taught. Dig into God's word. Believe God's truth. And and live in that. Continue in these things. Let me know if I need to pick up the other microphone in a moment. I'm hearing a little bit of crackling. Um, But that's what we'll look at next week. The other way is that we study how deception works. We understand what Scripture wants us to know about these things, to, to look hard at the things Satan wants to lure us into, the weaponry he uses. And that's what we're going to do today. The last days, by God's own promise, are difficult. He says, verse 1, there come times of difficulty. That could just as easily be translated violent or fierce, that word for difficulty. Same word used in Matthew eight twenty-eight. Jesus encounters these two demon-possessed men, and it says they were so fierce that no one would pass by them on the road. Nobody wanted to come near them because they were afraid of them. And so these times of difficulty are terrible times. These last days have had and will continue to have hardship and trouble that won't be random. It will be caused by evil intent, it will be purposefully violent, intent of which we must have no part, whether it be with those who lash out against ones in power or those in power seeking to put down those in weakness, we must echo the words of Jesus, my kingdom is not of this world. So 2 Timothy 3.1 introduces this list of evils that characterize these days. But verse 1 starts with this strong warning that this is here. This will grow worse. These are terrible times. One commentator put it this way. In the back of Paul's mind, as he wrote, was the understanding that the world, as an opposing force led by Satan, is waging a war against God and his people. Jesus spoke of this war plainly. So did Paul. The war would take many shapes, and God's people were to be ready for the attack of a hostile, persecuting enemy. I would submit to you that it's not simply that we be taken in some way of persecution, but that there also be the lure and the deception that sometimes causes us to want to just switch sides because it's easier, because the enemy is bigger and stronger, and sometimes some of the things the enemy says sound appealing, and so sometimes it's easier not to fight. In 2 Timothy, again, the attack is mainly false teaching, but Satan uses the world's weapons in many different ways. And so here's some of them. Verse 2, we'll read down through verse 5. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power, avoid such people. There's about, depending on how you counted, 18 or 19 traits in this passage. Some of you are getting nervous. Is this an 18 or 19 point sermon? We'll, We'll breeze over these. We won't go to each one in intimate detail. There's about 19 traits listed here, all of which are intended to expose just how terrible the days are and to teach us as believers in Jesus Christ so that we would reject these things out of hand, that we would clearly stand against them and not be deceived by them, that we would guard against being lured into them by our weak flesh succumbing to a fierce world. They are given to us because the draw of the world is strong. What all of these hold in common is they are evils that that show man exalting himself. Man loves himself. Man seeks his own best interest while diminishing and dishonoring his creator. All of these describe patterns of evil that the world sometimes embraces, sometimes tolerates, sometimes even reckons that they're justifiable under Certain self-centered circumstances, sorry, but we have to treat you this way. These are evils that should never describe us as followers of Jesus Christ. The, the list is bookmarked by the, the the word lovers. Lovers of self, not lovers of God. Lovers of self is the first one, and they are not lovers of God at the very end. To, to say not lover in biblical terms means hateful. There is no sort of middle ground that they just... They don't love God. They just maybe like him. It means they hate God. And so there's lovers of self versus haters of God. In fact, that that term lovers appears twice at the start and beginning of this and and sort of frames the whole thing. And what what it describes is man loving self and shrinking God. Wanting less of God and more of man. Loving self. Not lovers of God. That's the whole direction. That's the heartbeat of worldly thinking that that, that, that Satan wants us to diminish God. The, the first temptation in the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 3 is eat the fruit. Looks good, right? Your eyes will be opened, and you will be what? Like God. It'll be good. You won't have to be subservient to him anymore. You won't have to follow his directions and obey him because you will be like him. You will know like him. You will have a mind like him. You'll have his knowledge. And so you won't have to serve him anymore. And everything in this list fits that mold. I I, I can do what I want, regardless of what God says or prohibits or whatever it is. I, I can meet my desires. And so he starts and ends with, Lovers. In fact, there's two pairs at the beginning when he he speaks of lovers of self, lovers of money, and then at the end, lovers of pleasure, not lovers of God. It is clear that fallen man loves self, loves money that buys him stuff that makes him happy and loves the pleasures that he buys with that money. And he hates God because God gets in the way of all of that. Somehow God thwarts the the the, the me at the center of the world happiness that I really want to have. What's important for us to know as believers is Satan desires that for all practical purposes, we would live this way, that we would profess, I trust in Jesus. I believe the gospel. My faith is in him and my love is for God and yet still live as if, the worldly, fleshly sort of instincts just dominate my time and my energy. They are the things that I still pursue, and they are so enticing because they are there at every turn. In 1 John 2, the apostle pleads with his fellow believers and says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. The fallen world embraces everything on this list. All that Satan wants us to be preoccupied is with exalting self and shrinking God, and we must resist that pull. We must resist. Pride and arrogance. Those are the next two he uses on the list. Pride, the the word for proud there is synonymous with boastful. Some translations say boastful because it is sort of the idea of bragging. It's not just an internal vice. It is a pretentious, outspoken sort of. It is, I am this, or I've done that, or uh, look at me for this reason. And arrogant is, is similar. In the New Testament, the word is used at least a couple of times to speak of those who dismiss God. James 4, 6, 1 Peter 5, 5, God opposes the proud, it says there in our translation, same word as this arrogant here in 2 Timothy 3. They don't fear God. They're not trying to learn God's ways. They feel no compulsion to be contrite before God, to repent of their sin before God, to bow before God, because they're fine. As far as they're concerned, they're doing just fine with or without him, and they are not concerned about how to please him. He goes on and says abusive, disobedient to their parents. These are people who are an authority unto themselves. They will... They will hurt others by actions or words and think nothing of it. That's the idea of that uh, abusive. They have no respect for the most basic level of authority that God has built into humanity. And that is that of parent and child. They, they, they just don't care because it's their own feelings and desires that are supremely important. And, and, and you best let them do what they want to do because they're going to be abusive. If not, speak out against you. The next four words at the end of verse 2 and into verse 3... Um, uh, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, and unappeasable. These four really go together. In the Greek, they all start with the a prefix, which is equivalent in our English to the un prefix. It negates something. If that's in front of it, it says not this. And so what it's saying there is not grateful, not holy, not loving. That's the the ESV uses heartless there, but it, it has the idea of not loving. And then that last one, unappeasable, could just as easily be not forgiving. They're not reconciling. This is the only time this Greek word shows up in the New Testament, but in other writings outside of the Greek New Testament, it speaks of one who is obstinate, who is right and knows he's right and has no interest in in seeking forgiveness or, or trying to bring peace to a situation. They are unappeasable. The total picture is someone who lacks affection, who lacks basic kindness to even say thank you in some way to show some level of gratitude who is hard-hearted and who, as it says here, unholy, bears no resemblance to God. The, the temptation with all of these is we look and, and we shake our heads and we, we, we think of that that loud, arrogant person in the neighborhood who has nothing to do with God and, and, and we're inclined to look outside of ourselves on these things and shake our heads at this description and yet there is a sense in which we must acknowledge that our culture sadly applauds this sort of self-made man or woman, this one who boasts of, of doing it all his way without help and therefore having no one to thank. In fact, you ought to thank me for what I've done. That I'm the one who has done for you, and I have no need to show gratitude to anyone else. In these last days, verse three says, There will be those who are slanderous. Similar to the abusive person, but the slanderer is quick to lie about others. Slander has, has no qualms about destroying someone's reputation and, and, and making things up and exposing people and, and being malicious toward them. Then the rest of verse three says, without self-control, brutal, not loving, good. Again, three more negative words in the Greek that all start with A. In other words, lacking self-control, lacking gentleness, and lacking love for things that are good. This person doesn't have these. They have no regard for others or for the things of God, and therefore they are unrestrained. That's the idea of lacking self-control. I can do what I want to do, and I I don't care whether you like it or not or whether God cares or not. I, I am after personal pursuit regardless of the cost to others the the lack of gentleness as the ESV is translated here is brutal someone who is just willing to hurt doesn't matter what they they do to others they don't love that which is good in biblical terms again there's no middle ground that means they hate what is good they hate purity they hate the things that are righteous they even mock them there's no hunger for virtue because again it's it's about what drives self what feeds my own passions Verse 4 again, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Treacherous is the person who will betray another one in a heartbeat. I, I owe you no loyalty. I will show you none. You are as good for me as you are in the moment. And and if it accomplishes personal gain to harm you in some way, to betray you in some way, that's the that's the treacherous person because self is really all that matters. To make matters worse, it says this person is reckless. They they don't slow down and consider consequences. They just speak, just spews forth, and and it can destroy things in its way. It's like the proverbs, you know, the 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 sort of the thrusting of the sword, the foolish person speaks in ways that just cut up others around them. And that's what it means by reckless. It just stabs at others. That's swollen with conceit. It's an sort of interesting translation of a Greek word that originally meant smoking or smoldering, came over time to mean in a fog. And, and, and you get what that means if you've ever sat around a fire outside and the smoke has come and it's gotten in your eyes and suddenly you can't see and it's blurred your vision. And so this idea of swollen with conceit is they, they're not seeing clearly. And, and, and to be specific, they don't see themselves clearly. They, have, they don't have good sense of self-examination. They see themselves as, as wonderful and, and fine and good and doing what they want. And they don't see themselves in any kind of humble way. This, uh, this can even be the, 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 the social media influencer wannabe, you know, look at me, see me, look at what I'm wearing, look at what I'm doing. Here's, here's all the pictures so that you can admire me in some way and, and check the little heart and, and tell me how, how wonderful my life is. Verse 5, again, we've already talked of lovers of pleasure, not lovers of God. So verse 5, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power, avoid such people. So we've surveyed the list, and then Paul gives this summary sort of statement. He'll actually mention a few things in the coming verses. We'll come to those next week. But but this sort of wraps up with an interesting question, I think. What does he mean by having the appearance of godliness? There's two ways to look at it. Probably the most obvious one is that they somehow have a superficial outward appearance that is deceiving, even to those who might be near them, that despite all of these characteristics of their lives, that there's still something deceiving. Let me see this. I'm going to... Two ways I think you can take this, and that's the first. I, I think both of these are not mutually exclusive. I think they both have merit to them in terms of what Paul is saying here. But but this is the, the, the idea that, that this person talks just enough Christian lingo, talks about God and, and love and, and mingles with other Christians and lays claim to, to sort of Christian values that, that Christians approve of, and they do and say things that sound just enough to to put them in the category of Jesus follower, but it's appearance only. They're very deceiving because in their heart, it's, it's all about self. But the other way to look at this is that this deception is really rooted in their own hearts. It is a form of self-deception. They have a horribly dis- distorted view of what it means to follow Christ. And, and, and what I mean by that is somehow, somewhere along the way, they became convinced that they could have life the way they wanted it, keep all of their dreams and passions intact, at, at the same ones they've always had. Doesn't matter if other people agree or disagree. They can remain in the world and in love with the world and have Jesus too. Somehow take just enough of, of Jesus that he puts some kind of little seal of approval on their lives. And so Jesus can, Jesus can be that little extra added blessing to all of the stuff that I already have and how great I already am. And, and I, can, I can mix a little Jesus in there. That, that latter view is probably not as common or popular as it might have been years ago in our country when Christianity was sort of considered a, a, a sort of majority kind of view. At least it had that societal feel to it, I guess. But still today, there's, there's the sad reality of of cultural sort of Christianity that, that is in is appearance, a form. It's alive and well, and it's wrapped up in this deceptive outward appearance and self-deception. Let, let me tell you what I mean in that. The, 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 the cultural Christianity that sort of runs the gamut from perhaps at one end the, the social gospel with its energy focused on acts of charity and reforming society and, and, and fixing people's outward conditions to Dare I say, the the Christian nationalism that that focuses enormous energy on changing the world through politics and legislation. Don't get me wrong. We've been called to serve those in need, to love others, to care for them, to act in deeds and not just words as we love our neighbors. And we've been called to speak out against unholiness and, and, and to stand for what is right and true. But when those things become our consuming priority and fighting for and against whatever cultural agenda, whatever we see as the cultural agenda, that, that, when that takes over our conversations and our anxieties and our social media timelines, that's when the warning sign comes up of how we're being lured into this. When that becomes sort of the, the, the fighting attitude, of taking on one side or the other over this issue or that becomes the predominant thought then we may well be missing what God has actually called us to and empowered us for. That's what's interesting in this verse is that there's this contrast, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. What Paul seems to be saying is there's there's a form of godliness that is man-centered. It is energized by human agendas and passions and strength, but we are called the true godliness that is empowered by God's strength and and directed by his wisdom and his agenda. A form of godliness that lacks God's power is not real godliness. I would submit to you it, it may be a kind of moralism. It may be to use sort of the, the, the current terminology, canceling out those people who we think are wrong, or it may be flaunting our own sort of virtue as, as saying, hey, I'm a, I'm a good person. I, I, I do good things, but, but those things are not godliness. Godliness is empowered by God for the purpose of directing people back to him. Godliness Is empowered by the Holy Spirit so that we might fall to our knees in worship of Him and direct others to the worship of Him, to exalting God and shrinking self. It's His aim, it is to do the opposite of this list that exalts man and shrinks God. Godliness exalts God's grace and God's truth and God's mercy and his justice and his righteousness and his holiness. And it it puts man in his proper perspective as being created by God and for God so that we would find our greatest delight in him. This theme of power where it, it, it says having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power, we get that. In Scripture, there's some instruction about power. Acts 1.8, Jesus, as he is preparing to ascend, says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. For what purpose? So that you will be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. I am empowering you to exalt and glorify God and to be witnesses. Romans 1.16, the gospel of Jesus Christ is the power of God to save those who believe. The power of true godliness is literally life and soul transforming. The reason scripture gives us lists like this, and I I think it's so interesting when you read this list, and then I was, as I was listening, as Stuart was reading from Philippians 2, and he was, it it walks through this list of being humble and like Christ and and following after him and broken and and all of these things. And, And here we just get the reverse of that of here's, here's what worldly wisdom leads to. And so the whole, the whole point of a list like this is to keep us from getting fooled. A list like this reminds us that we are genuinely engaged in a spiritual battle that involves a domain of darkness that is real and a world that is real, and people and stuff and philosophies that are real, that are seeking to lure us in. It is a quest for people's souls, but for those who are trusting in Jesus Christ, it is to disunify us. It is to draw us away from Christ. It is to draw us into anger and rancor and and self-love and all of the things that worldly wisdom just adores. We've been called to follow Christ and to make disciples. And when worldly wisdom seeks to focus us on man's theories and agendas and wants and passions. It is taking us down a path that is displacing Christ and his gospel. Our power is from him through his spirit so that we would be equipped and enabled to to see these alluring off-ramps that are seeking to entice us away, but also so that we could draw others from off the side and and onto that, that wonderful path where there is life in Christ and hope in him. Let's pray. Father, I I thank you for knowing us as you have created us, that we are uh, frail and susceptible, and and we we need words and definitions and lists to warn us, to exhort us, we need to see things like this in all of its starkness. And, and Father, I pray that I and my brothers and sisters in Christ here watching online that, that the temptation from a passage like this that would, would seek to appeal to us would be the idea that I, I see all these things and I, I point at the world around me. I shake my head and I sort of wag my finger at those who are unappeasable and unloving and brutal. All of the things we've seen on this list. And and yet by your spirits giving of these things to Paul, to Timothy, to the church, you are clearly warning us that these are things we must know that, that in these fierce times, There will be temptation to these things. We we will try to find ways to justify actions that we know are not right and that are forbidden in this passage. And so we, we pray for your help. We plead for your spirit to fill your people. Help us stand as lights in the darkness as we are in this midst of this domain of darkness. Cause us to shine even as the, the darkness seems to grow. As the world becomes more angry. As love of Christ and the gospel seems to shrink. Help us not to become fearful. Not to run to Wrong responses and sinful behaviors because we feel like it's justified under these circumstances, or because we can we can find some peace by getting out from underneath the persecution or temptation of the world. Help us not to embrace these things. But cause us to stand as people who are rooted and grounded in faith in Jesus Christ alone, that you are our life and our savior that we would proclaim your truth. Lord, if there's anyone listening this morning who is at any point deceived that into thinking that somehow this is just a a list of don'ts, and if I just don't do these things, then I must be okay with God. I I pray, Lord, that today you would open their eyes to see that these, these lists like this, sadly, we... We feel them because they convict us all because we we can just see ourselves in different ways throughout these. And it is only by the perfect sacrifice of the perfect savior who gave himself on the cross and took the punishment for our sin and rose again and defeated sin and death. It's only by trusting in him that there is hope and forgiveness and life. Pray that you would Save, that you would use your gospel to to draw people to yourself. May you use our body, our commitment to strive, to be unified, to cling to truth together, to exhort one another. To be cautious and to warn one another against these things that we've thought about again this morning. Help us, please. We need the power of your spirit to be witnesses in the darkness for our Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.